Hello? Go for it, Denise. Oh, you can hear me. Okay. Okay. Uh, welcome, everyone, uh, to the Nuclear Information and Resource Service second telebriefing of the season. I'm Denise Jacobsberg, Administrative Coordinator here at NEARS, and I will be your moderator tonight. I want to let everyone know that uh, this hour and a half telebriefing uh, is being recorded and will be available on our website um, in the, probably in a few days. Um, uh, speaking of telebriefings, we had a, this is the second telebriefing of two. We had a telebriefing in September, and I just wanted to make, let everybody know um, that um, it was our kickoff telebriefing for NEARS for our 40th anniversary. And if you'd like to go listen to it, you can find that recording on our website. Uh, it's www.nears.org. Um, all you need to do is type in telebriefing at the top in our search, and it should pop right up. Um, that telebriefing features a wonderful panel of grassroots activists in the anti-nuclear movement, and it's a wonderful recording, so I hope you can, you can find it. So, um, so for tonight, uh, for the first half of tonight's telebriefing, um, we will first, first of all, the telebriefing will be in two parts. Uh, the first half uh, will be Tim Judson, Executive Director here at NEARS. Uh, he will open with a debrief and analysis of the 2018 midterm election outcomes and uh, what they mean for safe energy and nuclear waste um, here in our country. Um, from there, uh, we will go right in um, and continue to commemorate NEARS's 40th anniversary and what better folks to lead this celebration of four decades of no-nukes activism than NEARS's very own veteran staff, Diane DiRigo and Mary Olson. Mary and Diane will um, speak about the national campaigns uh, NEARS has led and what these ongoing campaigns uh, have shown us about how to win the fights ahead. Um, I want to remind uh, folks that um, we do have a question and answer and comment session, um, but that will commence after we finish both parts of the telebriefing. So you may want to write down your questions, comments for a, a bit later. I think the question and comments period may come around 9 o'clock. I'm not sure yet. Um, so I just want to mention um, my last agenda item <laughs> for, to, for now um, is I want to give a little plug for NEARS. Um, as, many, as, as many of you know, uh, Nuclear Information and Resource Service is an information and networking hub for people concerned about nuclear power, nuclear waste, radiation, and sustainable energy. We've been around since 1978, and of course, this is our 40th anniversary. Uh, we solely rely on donations from the public and private foundations. We don't receive any government funding or grants. So I realize that these midterm elections um, have all of us laser-focused um, on potential wins in our states. 
But if everyone could take a brief moment sometime soon and make a small offering to Nears, and we accept large offerings too, <laughs> but if you do that, um, you will help us immensely to continue to push for a nuclear-free world, particularly in this political climate, which demands Nears to be laser-focused on pushing back on reactor bailouts and the potential movement of radioactive waste to centralize interim storage facilities. We have our work cut out for us, um, and with your financial support, we can reach more people and let them know um, about our cause. Donating to NEARS, donating to NEARS is very easy. Uh, you can go to our website, www.nears.org, and just click on Donate, and then click on Donate Online. And of course, we accept checks and credit cards by phone um, if the Internet is not your thing. Um, FYI, uh, for $35 or more, you will receive the Nuclear Monitor monthly newsletter that provides up-to-date articles on nuclear challenges around the world. Uh, thank you for listening to my plug. Um, so without further ado, I will give you to Tim Judson, Executive Director of NEARS. Great. Thanks, Denise, and thanks for that great introduction. And, uh, and to everybody else who's called in tonight, uh, we hope we're going to have a big crowd to talk about uh, these exciting developments that have, that have happened over the last couple of weeks. Um, so as Denise mentioned, I'm Tim Judson. I'm the Executive Director at NEARS. I've been here for just over five years. Uh, but came to NEARS uh, myself as a grassroots activist uh, from, from the Northeast in New York and New England. Um, for 15 years before that, and so you know, the you know like the the, the mission that NEARS fulfills to to, to be a, a national uh, resource for the grassroots movement, um, that's really what we're what we're what we're living today, and and what the organization continues to do, and that's really the perspective that you know that we hope to be able to bring to the discussion of uh, you know what the election results from last week uh, hold for our issue. And, and for and for for making a safe energy future in the U.S. and around the world. Um, so that said, of course, you know, NEARS is a nonprofit, is a charitable nonprofit organization, and that means that we're that we have no partisan affiliation. Uh, we don't do any direct electoral work, um, and we don't have any political affiliations in that way. Um, we don't endorse candidates or parties, um, but we do have important perspectives on uh, on you know on on what uh, our elected officials do on issues of the environment and energy and nuclear power and radioactive waste especially. And uh, there's a lot at stake um, you know right now uh, both both at the national level and at the state level. And um, and we are really in a historic moment, not just with the you know the, the historic changes in, in, in Congress that, that that happened as a result of the elections last week and and in state houses around the country, um, but also with nuclear power and with nuclear waste. Um, you know, uh, those of us that have, that are that are concerned about these issues and feel passionately that uh, that nuclear power needs to be phased out and uh, and that nuclear waste needs to be managed responsibly and, and not produced anymore. Um, we haven't we have an historic opportunity in the next few years uh, to make that to make that happen and to fulfill the, the mission of NEARS and other anti-nuclear groups around the country. And uh, what has happened in the next week has big implications for that. Um, not all of them positive. Um, but we think there's a lot of opportunities that we need to be aware of as, as activists 
um, about how to make sure that, um, that there's the best possible outcomes uh, on nuclear-powered radioactive waste going forward. Um, so just as a general overview, and then I'll get into some specifics on the issues, um, you know, we have, I think, a historic, um, or at least a historically significant development um, with the change in the control of the House of Representatives, which means that there are going to be checks and balances, you know, on the Trump administration uh, going forward. And that's really important because of the initiatives that this administration is taking uh, to promote nuclear power um, and to take really bad decisions on radioactive waste. Um, the, uh, and, you know, and I think it's also significant that in the Senate, there's still a chance that, uh, that the margin of control in the Senate is going to remain very close, um, which means that, uh, that there will be, uh, you know, a lot of opportunity to, to influence things in both chambers. Um, that said, I think that the biggest takeaway from the election last week um, is actually that there's a lot of new people in Congress. Um, there's going to be close to 100 uh, new members of, of the House of Representatives and several new members of the Senate. And that presents a real opportunity for us. And, and it's not just happening in a few states where these, where these changes have taken place and where there's new representatives. Uh, there are new representatives in Congress from, um, from 36 different states. Um, and that means that the, the people around the country uh, you know, have an opportunity to get into, to get into start educating uh, your representatives and to be able to start shifting the debate in, the, in Congress. And the reality is that, you know, what we've experienced here, you know, sort of as the, the, the Washington, D.C. outpost of the, you know, of the grassroots movement is that there's, there's a tremendous lack of awareness and knowledge about nuclear power and radioactive waste on Capitol Hill. And that's bad from the standpoint that most of the time, um, you know, the, the, you know the, the, the nuclear corporations and utility companies uh, you know, are able to, they're, they're, the, they're the ones talking to our elected officials, and they're shaping their opinions. And now, with so many new people in Congress, we have an opportunity to get in early and to start educating this, you know, this, this new class of legislators um, and, uh, and shifting the debate in Congress significantly. And that's really what we should be focusing on is, you know, is, is getting in and talking to our legislators in a way that we haven't done in a long time. Um, now that said, you know, we're going to be focusing on the federal, uh, the, the results of the federal elections tonight. And that's not to say that the state, the state level elections aren't important. Um, there's just way too much to say about what's going to be happening in the states and, and, what, and what the results of those elections are. But suffice it to say that there's going to be a lot more prospects uh, for things like renewable energy, uh, good climate policy, um, and you know, with, with the changes in the governorships and the legislatures um, that just took place last week. Um, and I think in particular, uh, it's a good idea to watch out for, you know, for, for some particular states like Colorado and Maine and New York, uh, where some big things could start to happen in the next, in the next year or two. And if you are in those states, definitely make the most of it. Um, but there are major things at stake in Congress over the next two years, and and also some important things to watch out for over the next two months while the while the while the current Congress is still in session. Um, so, with that said, I think there you know we, we want to highlight some particular issues um, that uh, you know that the, um, that we're going to be watching out for in years, and we think are you know are going to be a good focus for for the safe energy movement to be paying attention to. Um, first and perhaps biggest. Um, is going to be this proposal that's that's uh, still forthcoming from the Trump administration uh, to essentially create a nuclear bailout, to create a new bailout program for nuclear power and coal. Um, now, this isn't something that Congress has direct authority over, 
Um, but the, but uh, but the but the role that Congress can play in pushing back on the Trump administration for what could be the dirtiest energy policy we've ever seen um, is going to be very important. Um, as a background, uh, you might remember that uh, earlier this year, uh, back in June, uh, a memo was leaked from the White House, uh, basically laying out uh, a, you know a, um, a memo. That are, are an executive order that the president um, is expected to issue sometime in the next. Well, it could happen anytime, really. Um, that would essentially uh, have the federal government take control of the electricity sector and prohibit any nuclear or coal plants from closing. And this is, a, you know, a really a dramatic uh, would be a dramatic initiative, unprecedented in its scope and scale, um, to use emergency powers under a couple of different federal laws. Um, to uh, and basically enact the president's energy policy without even having to go through Congress. Uh, we think there's going to be a lot of opposition to this. There will be a lot of lawsuits and legal challenges if they go forward with it. Um, but, uh, you know, but, we, but, we, but we think that they are making moves to go ahead and do this sometime soon. Uh, over the fall, they've been doing several things to, to make ready for this, including making some changes at some key federal agencies, including the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, uh, which plays an important role in regulating uh, the, uh, the energy markets in the country. Um, last year, when the, when the administration made their first attempt to do this nuclear and coal bailout, um, they did it in a way that had to get the approval of, the, of, of FERC, or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And NEARS and other environmental groups responded aggressively and got tens of thousands of, of comments and members of the public's voices into FERC, and FERC rejected that proposal unanimously. Uh, the administration was really embarrassed by that, and it set them back on their heels a few months. Um, but now they are really doing what they can to line up um, you know, everything that they need in order to push this agenda. And so there's going to be, you know, um, another appointment to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission coming up soon um, that is going to be very important uh, for us all to be engaged on and demanding that our congressional representatives especially um, are holding hearings and doing oversight of the administration's activities to move this agenda. Um, the other major thing that we're expecting uh, to be happening um, next year and in the next two years is legislation on nuclear waste. And if you're on our email list, which I'm sure most of you are, um, you've you know, taken lots of actions uh, to stop uh, nuclear waste legislation in Congress. Um, the big bill the last couple of years has been H.R. Uh, 3053, uh, which ended up passing the House of Representatives earlier this year um, and has luckily not moved anywhere in the Senate. Um, but that legislation you know, is essentially you know, the dream package of the nuclear industry. Uh, which would not only force the, the failed Yucca Mountain nuclear waste repository project in Nevada to move forward over and above the objections of the state of Nevada and the Western Shoshone people, but would also strip uh, Nevada, if it, if it were to actually go forward in a way that would work, would strip Nevada of its state rights and do um, and, and create a, you know, one of the worst uh, amendments to nuclear waste policy you know, in this country, which would be to essentially allow the Department of Energy, the federal government, to start taking ownership of nuclear waste at reactor sites and moving it to parking lot facilities in the, in the southwest before we even have a functioning long-term nuclear waste site um, that's, that's, uh, that's in operation. The current law sets a public, an important standard preventing the government from taking ownership of the industry's waste until there's actually you know, a, um, a viable place to put it in operation. And 
this legislation would actually circumvent that completely in order to basically initiate the mass transportation of nuclear waste on our highways and railways and waterways throughout the country. This is something that we've, that we've been opposed to for a long time, both because it's dirty and dangerous, um, and also because it's irresponsible, an irresponsible way to deal with nuclear waste. Um, this legislation you know, could still come up uh, before the end of this current legislative session, so we're keeping an eye on it, and I'll say a little bit more about that later. Um, but the issues of nuclear waste are going to come up again uh, in, in, the, in the next congressional session, potentially in some different ways that I'll discuss in a little bit. There's also um, another initiative by the Trump administration, which, you know, which is likely to see attention in Congress, um, that, came to, that came to our attention a, a few months ago. Um, when uh, a meeting of the, the, of the Department of Energy's Nuclear Energy Advisory Committee happened um, in which they made it clear that they have essentially reconstituted the Department of Energy um, as essentially a, you know, a, a, a strategy center uh, for pushing for a revival of the nuclear power industry. Um, they have appointed an advisory committee to the DOE that consists of a lot of uh, nuclear corporations and corporate executives, uh, you know, financiers that, that are interested in financing nuclear projects, um, and, and you know, and, and, and people of that, of you know, of those alignments, uh, to come together and create a strategic plan for how they are going to revive the nuclear industry. Um, not only uh, in terms of uh, pushing for, for, for nuclear waste legislation and those sort of things, um, but also, uh, you know, they have, a, they have four strategic priorities um, that they've identified as essential to preserving nuclear power um, that includes supporting um, and bailing out the existing fleet of reactors around the country to keep them operating for as long as possible instead of shutting down, that in, and, that, and that includes this nuclear and coal bailout. It includes uh, accelerating the commercialization of new reactor designs, um, including small modular reactors, but other advanced reactors that work on plutonium fuels and other sorts of dangerous things, um, and doing and, and, and funneling direct uh, taxpayer money to supporting the nuclear industry, um, such as you know building uh, reactors on government property. Uh, having federal agencies and facilities sign 40-year power contracts with nuclear with nuclear reactors um, in order to, to provide them with, with additional revenue, um, and a whole raft of things like this, uh, producing, you know, having the DOE create uh, test facilities for new types of reactors. Um, it's a laundry list of things that the industry believes are necessary if, it's in, if, if, you know, if nuclear power is going to stay around as a viable industry. And the flip side of this, which we think, which we think is, you know, is, is where we really have an exciting, the sign of the exciting opportunity that we have to stop nuclear power, is that they believe that if they do not get this agenda done in the next few years, that within 10 years, nuclear power could be on its way out in the U.S. And so we have this window of time in which we had to be vigilant and to be and to be fighting to stop them from you know from funneling billions and billions of taxpayer dollars into the industry and pushing for all these legislative measures that um, that, that we're starting to see pop up um, in order to uh, to make sure that um, that the nuclear power um, is you know is, is at the end of its days in this country. Um, there's also you know um, as usual in Congress you know a, you know a number of other pieces of pro nuclear legislation which which we track and. And um, you know, and, and which are you know important to pay attention to. 
Um, but these, but the main three things are the nuclear and coal bailout, uh, waste policy legislation, um, and this what we're, what we're sort of loosely labeling the nuclear revival agenda. Um, now that said, the next couple of months are going to be really important because uh, we're in what's called the lame duck session, uh, which is this period of time in between uh, the election and when the next Congress, uh, you know, is seated, in which uh, there's a lot of a lot of political sausage making that's going to that's going to be taking place, and there's a lot of we, you know, there's a lot of uh, bad legislation that can't pass, you know, when you know when people are thinking about getting reelected. Or you know, or otherwise, you know, the public is paying attention. And during this time, when uh, when there's a lot of you know, when there's a lot of movement happening within Congress, a lot of bills moving at once, um, and uh, there's there's you know, there, there's always a potential for um, for uh, you know, for for bills to get for bad bills to get inserted into other bills as amendments and to get passed without, with, you know, without congressional members really having time to, to pay attention and without the media really being able to report on anything because it's happening so fast and there are so many big issues. So what we know is, is, you know, is going to be priorities during the lame duck session, um, you know, especially given that the Republicans are losing control of the House of Representatives, um, is that they need to pass uh, a spending bill or a budget bill um, that in, in order to keep the government from shutting down in December, that's going to create, that's going to take up a lot of attention and focus, and especially focus in the media. And also, the Trump administration really wants to push through um, its immigration policy, and especially you know things around the border wall and um, and a number of things like that, which are going to rightfully get a lot of attention in the media. Um, but the danger on our issues is. That um, that while the while the attention is being focused on on other issues like those, uh, that things can be happening essentially under cover of darkness uh, that we need to be really vigilant about. And so uh, we need for everyone to really be paying attention, we'll be watchdogging it, and uh, and putting and raising the alarm if something's about to happen. Um, so again, you know, in terms of the lame duck session, there's a couple of there's a couple of uh, pieces of legislation that we're concerned about. One, of course, is HR 3053, the nuclear waste legislation, um, that we think, um, you know, there's still a chance that uh, that someone could try to move it. Um, the reason for that is that um, uh, the the House has already passed that has already passed that bill, and it's only waiting on the Senate to take action. And what has held that bill back in the Senate this year is that uh, the Senate has had to uh, the Senate leadership in the Republican Party has had to protect. Uh, the, 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 the sole Republican senator from Nevada who was up for re-election this year um, and did not want to compromise uh, Senator Heller's chances of being re-elected by, you know, by, by allowing a vote on Yucca Mountain. Um, it, uh, senator Heller turned out lost his election anyway uh, last week, and, uh, and so now there's a concern that basically the, the Senate Republican leadership um, does not need to protect um, you know, the, the Nevada senator anymore, and there's a chance that that legislation could still move if it were to become enough of a priority or there was a, there was a, there was a way they could sneak it through in something else. Um, uh, there's, there's also uh, you know, a, a piece of pro-nuclear legislation that's connected to this nuclear revival agenda. Um, it's H.R. 4378, um, the Nuclear Energy Research Infrastructure Act, um, which would uh, start to move forward um, some of these priorities around uh, you know, promoting uh, new reactors and government investment in new reactors. This bill in particular would, uh, would funnel $2 billion 
of taxpayer taxpayer money over the next few years into building a test facility for 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 you know for for helping the industry design and develop new reactor types. Um, so we're going to be keeping our eye out on that as well. Now looking forward into 2019, the landscape is a bit different, and and in particular, you know, on uh, on nuclear waste. So we're hopeful that going forward into 2019. Um, that, uh, that, that there's going to be a lot less chance of something bad happening to promote the Yucca Mountain project in Nevada. Um, and, that's, and, and, that, and that's a dramatic change from the last several years when that's been such a huge priority of the, of, of, of the, of the House of Representatives. Uh, but with the change in leadership in the House, um, that seems less, a lot less likely that there's, that there's going to be a, one chamber of the legislature, of the Congress, that's going to be pushing for Yucca Mountain. But what it does is it also creates uh, potential uh, alignment between the House and the Senate, uh, where where uh, where this uh, other uh, you know bad nuclear waste option of creating these parking lot nuclear waste dumps in the Southwest uh, could go forward, um, where there seems to be more bipartisan support for that idea um, than for Yucca Mountain, and so there's a chance that we're going that, that we need that we're that we're going to need to. Um, to you know, to, to focus on fo focus on the nuclear waste debate in a new way next year, and that's why it's incredibly important for people to start meeting with your congressional representatives um, and educating them about about nuclear waste issues um, to make sure that we that you know that, that we're able to you know to, to keep bad legislation in Congress from moving forward on that. We'll definitely be be keeping you posted on how that develops going forward. Um, there is. Um, you know, like I said before, the, we, we expect the, 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 the nuclear and coal bailout proposal to come out next year, and it's going to be incredibly important for, for Congress to push back on that, especially the House of Representatives, where that's much more likely. And so, again, getting in and talking to your, talking to your representatives, especially if you've got new representatives, um, to, to make it clear that this, that, this, you know, that, this is, that this is a bad energy policy that we can't afford to let, you know, to, to let happen, and that they should be holding the administration's feet to the fire in every possible way over that. Um, and then again, this, the, this nuclear revival agenda where we've already seen bills being introduced, including one which really seems to be coming directly out of this Department of Energy agenda called the Nuclear Energy Leadership Act. Um, that the current version of that legislation um, is uh, is called uh, uh, Senate Bill 3422, but it'll obviously have a different. Uh, it'll obviously be under a different legislative number next year. Um, and then, of course, you know, none of none of these things are going to happen unless Congress devotes money to it in the budget and in the spending bills. And so we are going to be monitoring the appropriations bills um, to make sure that even even if bad things get through, that they don't get any money. And so it's going to be important for everyone to be paying attention to that as well. Now, all that said, you know, just to give some, you know, some tips, um, you know, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, ways to, to really productively engage your members of Congress in the Senate. And, um, you know, those of us who, you know, who do this a lot in Washington, you know, kind of have this under our belts. But there's but there's important important things to remember because we we all can be effective lobbyists. Um, on our issues, and especially grassroots lobbyists who are the constituents um, who your representatives are, you know, are, are, you know, are supposed to be advocating for on the Hill, they need to hear from you. So what we recommend is a few things um, to just kind of keep in mind and, and, and to start doing. First is to meet with your congressional reps right away. Um, get in there early, um, you know, and, 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 start, and start building a relationship with them. Um, 
The second thing is to find out which of their staff people um, work on, on the issues that you're concerned about, and especially with nuclear energy and radioactive waste. Um, establish a relationship with that staff person. Meet with them whenever you can. Uh, send them regular updates, like you know, like every month or something like that. If you can, if you can do that, um, but but whenever, but make sure that you're meeting with them on a regular, that they're hearing from you on a regular basis as well. And keep in mind that even if they disagree with you, if they're hearing from you regularly um, and know that you're watching, um, that you're a re that, that, that you're a resource to them, especially when you know when, when something new happens. Um, also, you know, it's, it's a good idea to be, to be writing letters to the editor because um, the, you know, our, the, the congressional rep staff, uh, they keep track of those letters to the editor in the paper, and especially if they, if they see your name um, in the papers as well, um, they're going to know that you're watching and that you're attentive and, you know, and, and that you're getting your issue out, out there in the community. Um, and also remember, when it comes time to take action, um, that even if uh, you're in a community where there, you know uh, where you don't have a where you don't have a, a big environmental organization to act with, um, that you and your friends can make a big difference. Um, you know we have seen time and time again, um, you know votes happen in Congress uh, when a you know when a, when a representative voted the other way because they got what they described to us as a ton of phone calls, and we when we asked them how many phone calls did you get, how you know I mean what, what was that like, and we hear oh well ten people called me. And you know, and so that's, that that level of activity, um, the, the the role that we can play as activists who are paying attention and alerting our community and mobilizing our friends, can have a big difference when it comes down to, to some of these issues. So with that said, um, you know, I'll close it up and hand it back to to, De to Denise. Okay, great, Tim. That was uh, great. Lots of food for thought and um, really good discussion. Um, so I just want to remind folks who uh, have possibly come on to the call a little late or later, um, I just want to let you know that we are doing uh, question, answers, and comments um, after the second part of this telebriefing. Um, and um, yeah, so um, let's uh, move on to um, we are going to commemorate Nears' 40th anniversary, and um, we have Diane DeRigo and Mary Olson, our veteran staff here at Nears, um, who are going to now talk about um, our national campaigns um, that Nears has led and uh, what these ongoing campaigns um, have shown us about how to win the fights ahead. Um, Diane, or I'm not sure who would like yep. to go yep, first. Yep, Diane first. Okay, great. Hi, this is Diane DeRigo, uh, Radioactive Voice Project Director at Nuclear Information and Resource Service. And I have um, been here, I think, 32 years myself, and NEARS has been around for 40. One of my favorite successes at NEARS, uh, which involved people in all 50 states in various ways, was what has been called the BRC, or Below Regulatory Concern Battle to prevent nuclear waste from being declared below regulatory concern and released into regular garbage or recycled into everyday consumer products, building materials and supplies, basically released from regulatory control. Uh, this is actually a threat that started from the beginning of the nuclear age, the first battles I saw in this uh, were back in 1962 
and they do continue today, although we have had some major successes in the U.S. because of public uh, action with people like yourself and with NEARS helping to coordinate all of our fights together and focusing them on uh, agent regulatory agencies, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Transportation, and on Congress, uh, House and Senate, and then actually taking an international approach and fighting it um, at the United Nations level with the international, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, and the European Union. Uh, because the nuclear industry wants to let its waste go. And as long as nuclear power and weapons are being made, nuclear waste will continue to be created. And the generators are going to want to dump and release rather than pay to try to isolate it for a long time that it stays dangerous. It's hard enough to stop stupid and dangerous policies and actions with high-level radioactive waste, irradiated nuclear fuel that can kill someone in seconds unexposed. This battle against the release of low concentrations of radioactive waste to prevent the deliberate release uh, into the marketplace um, is more complicated and uh, a little more, well, it's, they're both difficult fights. Uh, but radioactive Radioactivity can cause cancer and uh, much other health damage, birth defects, reduced immunity, heart disease, and more um, at every level. And it's harder to detect, more expensive to detect when it's in the low level, the low level waste stream, which uh, is there's less uh, public scrutiny of. In 1980 and 1985, Congress passed the Low-Level Radioactive Waste Policy Acts, Public Law 99-240, and then its amendments. And it, because all of the six so-called low-level dumps in the country were leaking, the ones in New York, Illinois, South Carolina, Nevada, Washington, and Kentucky, uh, Congress, uh, the nuclear industry needed new places to dump. These places were not... Um, but even the state governments were concerned about nuclear waste starting to leak and coming in leaking and all of that. So the Low Level Waste Policy Act was passed in 1980 and the amendments in 85, uh, blatant lies on the Senate floor about low level waste, claiming it was all medical waste when in fact over 97% of it is from nuclear power. Uh, also, as Tim was talking about, the, the current threats of uh, nationalizing the nuclear, uh, the, the energy of the electric system, um, what this did was to uh, supersede state and local laws and regulations. And so really nuclear power is a real threat to democracy on many levels. And in the low-level waste law, it's the only industry that I know of where Congress directed states to find the dumps that the nuclear industry needed. Uh, needs. And so states were engaged, and there were in the range of 20 states, uh, 50 sites that were uh, being uh, searched for with state tax money, with uh, 
with taxes and with um, state efforts to find nuclear dumps for the private nuclear power industry. Uh, during this time, and this was, as I said, it started in around 80 and 85, and it continued up until the Waste Control Specialist Dump opened in 2012 in Texas. Uh, that was the, the first time that a new so-called low-level dump opened. Well, in the meantime, since these um, states were threatened with uh, new dumps, Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, South Dakota, North Carolina, Nebraska, Kansas, Arkansas, Texas, California, Colorado. I don't think I've missed any, but there may have been others. Um, all of those places engaged in helping the industry find new unlined soil ditches for nuclear power waste. People were learning that nuclear power makes nuclear waste. At, at the same time, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was developing policies, adopting policies for below regulatory concerns. And because the public was educated and poised, uh, we were in a position to organize uh, with our local organizations, but also with the towns, the counties, the, the cities, the states. Uh, resolutions passed on all of these levels. 14 states passed laws based on state authority that states have over nuclear issues. The federal government preempts states from protecting their citizens on radiation. However, states do have authority over the need for power and land use planning and uh, electricity and um, the perception of radiation dangers. So laws passed in 14 states, uh, three other states passed either a resolution or passed one of their houses requiring that nuclear waste continue to be regulated in those states, even if the federal government deregulated it. And those laws were passed purely by people working with us at NEARS who were concerned about nuclear, uh, nuclear power and radiation. And uh, when uh, we finally got um, Congress to consider um, reversing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's below regulatory concern policies, we were able to call on the National Association of Counties, the National Association of Towns and Townships, the League of Cities, the National Association of Attorneys General who wanted to defend their state authority for their own state laws, even if they didn't care one way or the other on nuclear power, they wanted to retain their authority over management of uh, nuclear materials. Uh, all of these, along with the general public and our organizations, went to Congress, hearings were held, and we were able in 1992 to get Congress to overturn the below regulatory concern policies. This was such a victory that the NRC, uh, I think the EPA, and uh, the uh, Electric Power Research Institute uh, called on their staff to not ever use the term BRC or below regulatory concern again. All other kinds of terms were being then suggested for the same concept, beneficial reuse, clean, clear, clearance, de minimis, exemptions, exclusions, uh, free release, linguistic detoxification, uh, release out of control, reclassification, 
uh, did I say beneficial reuse, deregulation, uh, and very low-level radioactive waste, very low-level. Uh, slightly radioactive scrap metal or material. All of these terms were being used instead because they didn't want to trigger the public opposition that had been so great uh, for those years uh, when the public was fighting these bad ideas. So the bad ideas continued. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission did overturn its own policies at the demand of Congress and then went with its tail between its legs to the international community to get the United Nations and the International Atomic Energy Agency to adopt clearance levels that would uh, the U.S. would then be forced to adopt to be consistent with the rest of the country. This led to the Department of Transportation eventually adopting uh, much higher exempt levels for radioactive materials and transport than they previously had. And this is a secret way that the nuclear industry can get rid of its waste. They can put it on uh, into transport, and even though it's supposed to stay regulated, it doesn't have to be labeled anymore under DOT regs, and it can get into uh, recycling facilities or solid waste facilities. So this is something we have to try to track. Um, and the, um, the fight continues. I mean, we did, uh, NIRS worked with groups in Germany and Sweden and England on preventing, uh, in Japan, preventing this kind of clearance in those countries. But it's only the U.S. that does not have a clearance level. We do not have a level below which radioactive waste can be released. Uh, however, uh, the agencies and the industry continue to try to make, uh, to allow that to happen. And so uh, the current threats are uh, through uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission allowing the import and export of radioactive waste. The whole Canadian nuclear power and weapons complex is in the process of being refurbished. And a lot of their materials are coming in, radioactive waste are coming into the US, going to places like Tennessee, Pennsylvania, uh, the state of Washington, Illinois, uh, to be, quote, processed and then magically disappear, go into what, regular garbage, recycling? It's hard to track. Then uh, they're supposed to send some of it back to Canada. No records are required on what comes in and goes out. So we've got a sieve uh, for in import and export of nuclear materials. Uh, we've got the NRC uh, trying to make a new category of waste called very low-level waste, uh, which is uh, a below regulatory concern, another name for it. Uh, we've got the Department of Energy, which does have a ban on letting metal out from radioactive areas, but they've got ways to circumvent it. And they uh, never did agree to prevent releases of radioactive concrete, soil, asphalt, tools, plastic, chemicals, uh, other things. Uh, the EPA. We've stopped them many times from letting radioactive waste go into hazardous and solid waste landfills. But if NRC can declare it very low level waste, that's exactly where it would go in addition to commercial recycling. And so we have our work cut out for us. We had our work cut out for us in all the other administrations. And as Tim has pointed out, this one is especially worse. Not that anybody on this call needs to be told that. Uh, but we have strategies that we have used that can win. 
and um, we may have to fight these battles again for, in some cases, the 14th or the 15th or the 16th time, but we've won before, and we can continue to win if we stay on top of it, and we're so grateful for all of the collaboration and work with all of you, and um, send us some donations. That's it. Great. Mary? So should I just speak up? Yes, Mary, yep. you're still there. Great. Yes, great. It's yeah, great I'm here. Great. Yes, please. I'm Mary Olson. I'm the Southeast Regional Coordinator but of Nuclear Information and Resource Service. I work out of Asheville, North Carolina. But I retain previous titles as well as Radioactive Waste Specialist and Staff Biologist. And I want to hearken back to a midterm election that's now quite a long time ago. And as you heard with Diane's stories, it's hard to have what are essentially partial victories. But at the same time, if we don't acknowledge that we have had the muscle as a community and as a network and as concerned um, citizens to actually win, from time to time, it begins to be almost impossible to keep going. And so I want to go back to remembering the 1994 midterm elections. Uh, Clinton, of the bill variety of Clinton, was president, and Al Gore was vice president. And again, NEARS is nonpartisan, but our country can be very partisan at times. And 1994 was really one of those moments where a huge uh, shift happened. That was when Newt Gingrich came in with his, we always joked it was contract on America, but I think he said contract with America. Um, and the Republicans took both the House and the Senate, and somewhat different than what we've just had happen this month, but still the real change of guard. And there'd already been, this was 1994, there'd already been nuclear waste legislation introduced into Congress. Not the same as what's been floated in the last several years, but really the predecessor. Because in 1994, there were only four years left to the deadline that was enshrined in contracts between nuclear waste generators, the nuclear reactor owners, and the Department of Energy for the irradiated fuel rods to have a federal destination. And in those contracts, it actually said 1998, and we were in 1994 in front of that. And so there was a big push to try and free up the logjam, as they called it, and get a place that the waste could move to by 1998. And so the nuclear industry came up with a brilliant idea, and that was let's put up a parking lot facility like are being proposed for Texas and New Mexico, only in this case they wanted to put that parking lot facility or um, CIS, Consolidated Interim Storage is what it's called now, but back then it was still called a Monitored Retrievable Storage Site. They wanted to put that right at Yucca Mountain in Nevada, which is a site that was selected for study for a geologic repository, but that was a very, very political process, and it was the only site that was going to be studied, and it hadn't been fully characterized at that point. There was no 
license at all. There was no license application. It was just, uh, okay, we're studying the site, so let's put the waste there, which being trained as a scientist seemed like a really bad idea to me. Well, those bills had been introduced before the midterms. At least there had been one on the Senate side. And at that time, the executive director was Michael Marriott, and he was talking about my job shifting to working to stop this legislation in Congress. And I was so terrified by the idea that I was going to be trying to work on legislation that I have absolutely no idea as a young staff person. I had only joined staff in 1991. This was now basically two and a half years later that I ended up deciding I would take a job with Nuquatch in Wisconsin instead. So I was actually in Wisconsin when I hear NPR's reporting of the midterm elections and hear that the Republicans have taken all of the control, meaning winner takes all, they're the heads of all the committees in both the House and the Senate. And meanwhile, the Democrats had been in control, especially in the Senate, but the House as well, for a really long time. I mean, decades. People like John Dingell and Bennett Johnston had careers as committee chairs, and suddenly they were not going to be in control. And I heard this, and all of a sudden I realized that there could be a way to get those guys not to support our point of view, not to be our friends, but that they wouldn't want the Republicans to succeed, that they might be willing to monkey wrench. They might be willing to stand in the way, as the Germans said later about nuclear waste. We stand in the way. And so I picked up the phone and I called Michael back. There I was in Wisconsin and said, Michael, have you hired my job yet? And he said, no, but I'm, I'm interviewing. And I said, well, you know, I really think I understand how to do it now. And I told him my understanding. And he said, yeah, you better get your butt back here. And so that year he came up with the phrase, Mobile Chernobyl, because the largest impact of any proposal for consolidation of this most highly radioactive of wastes, the largest impact is transportation in terms of the numbers of people who live along our existing interstates, our existing rail lines, and there are barge projections as well. Um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission says that you can detect, they can detect this waste from a half a mile away in any direction. The ground does a better job of absorbing, but it's basically a big sphere of radiation that comes through these containers. And so the term mobile Chernobyl has been contested, but if there's an actual accident that cracks the container and were to allow radioactivity to be released in particle form, it's the same particles that came out of the Chernobyl reactor. It's irradiated fuel maybe a smaller scale, but the level of impact in a, in a more confined area could be very similar. So we stood by that term. And I have to tell you, I was really tickled because October 1st of this year, I was in Charlotte at a meeting that the nuclear industry was holding for itself, and I was there to uh, monitor what they were saying and doing. And uh, one fellow who's a real promoter of moving nuclear waste said, yeah, the, the public has these strange ideas. They talk about China syndrome. They talk about mobile Chernobyl. And here it is, 2018, and Michael came up with that phrase back in 1994 or 5. 
But a big, huge difference about fighting legislation in the 90s was the president. I came back to Washington after those midterms and started my work getting to know the House and the Senate. And one day I was in a meeting and a guy from uh, one of the big unions came in and said, look at this. And what he had was a one paragraph of text on White House stationery saying that President Clinton would veto this legislation in no uncertain terms. And all of a sudden, the whole landscape of the project changed because all we had to have was enough senators to be able to sustain his veto should this legislation come to a vote. And so one-third of the Senate plus one. Now, during President Obama's era, we saw the Senate conducting itself so that Obama essentially would never have a veto. But back in the mid-90s, it was quite a different landscape. And being able to deliver basically uh, 34 senators on any given day was the job that I undertook and did for the next six years. And it was really quite an amazing process. People were doing the same types of activities that Diane uh, described. We had petitions. We had resolutions. And the resolutions were written so that whether it was a housing facility, homeowners association, or whether it was a city council, county council, even a state legislature um, body, the resolution was to that state's congressional delegation asking the delegation to oppose any legislation that would result in this wholesale shipment of radioactive waste. Now, our community has come a long way since then, and I think many of us understand that eventually this waste does have to move. However, anything that's labeled as a temporary site means that Either it's going to become de facto permanent without all the proper study and qualification and standards that you might want to impose on a site that is going to isolate this waste forevermore. So a, de facto, a temporary site becoming de facto permanent is a really bad plan, or it means that it's not temporary. I mean, it is temporary, excuse me. It's not going to become de facto permanent, which means it's going to be moved again in which case this whole transportation piece would be enacted a second time. And tonight we don't have the time to go into the new levels of information that we have about the aging of the waste, the aging of the containers, but all of this mediates the idea that it would be really good to figure some of that out before we move it at all, and it would be really good to only move it once. So back in the 1990s, we did have victory over victory over victory. Whenever this these bills came up, they tended to pass in the House, but in the Senate we had the margin to sustain Clinton's veto. And indeed, one of the last things, not the very last things he did in office, but in his last year of office, the Senate did bring these bills to a vote. He did veto the bill, and it was sustained. And, and that's the kind of, of victory that we need to recall, that we can develop the strategies that we can find the muscle to, if not get the good thing, at least stop the bad thing. And um, I think I'm probably right around time. Denise, have you been keeping time? Uh, yeah, we are, we're about four minutes to nine. 
Um, yeah, I think I'll stop there. I was going to talk a little bit about the, just I'll say one sentence on it. That sure. The, the nuclear industry said they were going to have this big renaissance, and I was living in the southeastern United States before that began, but in the southeast there were 15 proposed reactors that have not happened. We called it the relapse, and people stood together and challenged every single proposal. And, again, it's partial because we have still the Vogel and summer sites where the construction was started, where there's a huge opportunity cost on real climate solutions because those are never going to perform for carbon reduction. But stop in 15, hey, that's not, not too shabby. That's it. That's great, Mary. Thank you. Yep. Uh, so everyone, um, we're now going to start a, a question and answer comment session. Um, I believe the way it works is that you, um, I guess you unmute, is that correct, Tim? Uh, you press star six on your, on your dial pad and that will raise your hand so that you can get in line to, uh, to ask a question. And it uh, looks like we might have our first, uh, our first question right now, someone from a 718 area code. Great, thank you. Hi, it's Annie Wilson in Brooklyn. And so, Hi. hello, Tim. Hello, Diane. Mary. Hey. Uh, thanks for the presentation tonight, and thanks for doing all you've been doing all these years. And so I have a kind of question. Uh, first is a background statement as I'm observing from the behind-the-scenes activities. Nuclear is clean in New York. It's clean in New Jersey, and there are plenty of activities here in New York, whether it be a New York Renews 110-member uh, coalition, whether it be what happened yesterday uh, at, in D.C. with the Sunrise Movement and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, no mention of nukes. There was the People's Climate March here in New York, September 6th. They had already decided to not have nuclear, although it was raised as one of the talking points, to not be in the talking points. So I'm really concerned about uh, large movements that are taking off that are not considering their concerns for what is now nuclear powers, clean energy, and subsidies. And in New York, $7.6 billion have been allocated to the extending of licenses. Uh, for some reactors on Lake Ontario until 2029. Uh, so that's the background for everyone. And so my question to Nears High is, is there some kind of outreach education initiative to somehow correct this misdirection of, of messaging and, and the movement of climate, climate movement here? That's my question. You want to do it, Jim? Yeah. Thanks. Sure. It's really serious. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's yeah. a really good question, Annie. And I think I think the answer is, you know, I think uh, you know, like it's always been for us, is that you know, people who are who are opposed to nuclear power, we all have to show up, and you know, and to be the ones, you know, sort of uh, you know, pushing for for sanity on this issue. And you know, we've 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 actually done quite a lot in the last few years. And, you know, I think that you know, you're noticing, um, you know, the what the the effect of 
uh, how much power the nuclear corporations have had in the state legislatures. Um, but you know, we've you know, I think we've been building a lot of awareness among the environmental movement the last few years by showing up at the big demonstrations. Um, you know, at the, at the People's Climate Marches in New York and Washington and Philadelphia. Um, I think that we just need to keep on doing more and more of that all the time because I think the reality is that, you know, the people are rightly concerned about climate change and what a crisis the climate is. And, and so there's a lot of attention and a lot of activism going into that. And, you know, the industry is very, you know, has, has been pumping millions of dollars into public relations, uh, trying to obfuscate the issue of nuclear to make it seem like it's a climate solution. And we've got to be talking to our friends and doing a lot and doing a lot of education because those of us that are aware of the issue, um, you know, have an important role to play in this. So that's, you know, that, that's kind of the, the approach that we've taken. And, um, you know, and what we've seen happening more and more is in states like Ohio and Illinois, um, you know, and, and New Jersey where these, where these bailouts are being proposed is, you know, people are at, you know, the, you know, the environmental movement is, is starting to wake up to what a bad deal this stuff is. And I think we just need to keep on building on that, uh, you know, going forward. And, you know, and, and, and it's tragic, right? I mean, in New York, the $7.6 billion bailout um, that got pushed through two years ago, um, you know, New Yorkers have already spent over $700 million subsidizing old dukes when the state is only putting a few million dollars a year into renewables. Well, exactly. So um, just to respond to that, let's say the climate march this year, 2018, I had gone to preliminary meetings in July and it had already been decided that the, the discussion of renewables as being impeded or because of these nuclear bailouts was not going to be an agenda item or a bullet in the talking points, period. And that had been decided. And um, I've heard that Tom Steyer is funding one of the larger organizations involved with this. I, I, I find that in New York... There's a massive movement that's created, and somehow there's been some kind of consensus to not include nuclear, and that's my concern here in a big way. Yeah, well, you're right to be concerned. We've got to keep on pushing it. Yeah, okay, thank you, but okay. Hi, um, uh, next question. Uh, next up is uh, from the 845 area code. Hello. Am I still? Hello. Yes, Am I? This is Mana. I think it's my turn. Mana Joe Green from Clearwater. Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. Great. Thank you. First of all, um, just to follow up on the previous discussion, um, you know, Clearwater with Nears and others, are suing over the nuclear subsidy uh, here in New York, and our case is going to hearing soon. And Tim has done the yeoman's uh, work uh, on that case along with our attorneys. Um, I had two quick comments. One is that I helped to uh, get Antonio Delgado elected. I was one of the first public officials to come out and uh, endorse him, and I already have a meeting scheduled with him, and most of that meeting will be to educate him. Uh, we also have Peter Wolf is scheduling meetings with the key elected officials in uh, New York, and we're working with others um, to try to meet with key people in New Jersey. 
but um, it would be helpful to all of us if there was um, kind of a national uh, sheet of talking points. We've accumulated them. I took careful notes on this call. Uh, um, Peter Wolf has a, a sheet of talking points, but I, I think it would be just really wonderful if we all were, you know, if, if NEARS could um, present something very simple that we can all use and we can elaborate. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to really be sure people knew about, especially with newly elected officials, is the conference, the, the congressional briefing we did earlier this year um, with EESI, and every bit of that was documented. It's probably the best one page you could go to, and believe me, I, I admire the work of um, NEARS and Beyond Nuclear and NEIS and all of the national organizations working on this, but um, to do a congressional briefing for newly elected, if, the, if people go to eesi.org and click on briefings, it's about the sixth one down, and it was videotaped, all the PowerPoints are there, there's a roughly 20-page backgrounder, and then... Um, you know, just it's an extremely valuable website and tool for newly electeds or people speaking to newly electeds. I agree totally, Mana. This is Mary, and I encourage people to look that up. Another best kept secret as a resource is the State of Nevada Nuclear Projects Office website. And especially right now when we're trying to watch for things that might be like little hidden prairie dogs and then they pop up quickly, the State of Nevada Nuclear Projects Office has a what's new link. And I forget to monitor it, but they put up everything that has to do with radioactive waste um, on that what's new link every day. So I recommend that we all look at that as well. Great. Thank you. Um, I just want to... Uh, I think um, I think it's under e efi.org. Is that correct? S is in Sam. Energy Environment Study Institute. S is in Sam, not F. Oh, oh, oh! I missed that. Okay, thanks. Great. So moving on to the next question, we have someone from the 202 area code. Yes, it's Alfred Meyer from Physicians for Social Responsibility in New York City. Uh, in terms of the big push to reinvigorate the nuclear uh, monster, I wanted to point out uh, a website from the other side called energyfuturesinitiative.org, headed up by the ex-Obama uh, Secretary of Energy, Ernest Moniz, and in August of 2017, they published a report called the U.S. Nuclear Energy Enterprise, a Key National Security Enabler. And this is arguing that we need nuclear energy in order to have the infrastructure for adequate nuclear weapons. So I think this is an important strategic understanding 
And for those of you who want to broaden the discussion from just the energy argument to the nuclear proliferation argument, I think this gives us good ammunition to make that case. Also, in March of 2018, <clears throat> they issued a policy paper entitled Leveraging the DOE Loan Program, alluding to the $39 billion in existing uh, authorized funds. So um, these are some uh, resources to understand how the other side is approaching things. Lastly, I'd just like to make a comment that um, a few weeks ago, due to completely unrelated circumstances to this call, I had lunch with a lawyer who, it turns out, uh, won the first case suing the government for not taking the waste in 1998. So I asked him what he thought the solution to uh, nuclear waste was and how things would go. And his first comment is that consolidated interim storage will not fly because of the transportation issues. So I mention that just to honor Michael Marriott and his creation of the mobile Chernobyl term and to give all of us encouragement to keep on this track that uh, this is a uh, effective strategy to oppose these uh, maneuvers. Thank you. Thank you, Alfred. Thanks, Alfred. Thanks, Alfred. Thanks, Alfred. Yeah, I think we'll hand it over to Mary to comment on, on, the, on this nuclear weapons connection. But just before we get into that, just want to remind everybody that if you have a question or you know, want to share something, uh, just, uh, just press star six on your phone and you'll get into the Q&A queue. So uh, back to Mary. Well, I just comment? was struck by Moniz's choice of adequate nuclear weapons um, because I've really been grieving this idea that we're dropping the Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty, which is the famous one that Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev signed together in 1985 and was subsequent to our friend Dr. Helen Caldicott's shuttle uh, diplomacy, if you will, because she met with Gorbachev and then she met with Reagan. And that treaty followed. I, we can't say it was Helen's baby, but hey, you know, every little step towards greater sanity in our world. And um, I, think, I think it's somewhat reassuring to me to begin to hear some voices from both ends of the political spectrum invoking the need for things like rule of law and constitutional provisions to be upheld. And someday, we hope, the new uh, convention on the prohibition of nuclear weapons will be something that people in this country will, will sign on to. But at this juncture, there's 69 nations of the world that have chosen to declare themselves nuclear-free, which is a sign of hope. If I can follow up. Yep. Um, I, I mentioned this uh, relationship between the nuclear energy industry and weapons because I've always believed that nuclear energy is the cover story for nuclear weapons. So yeah. they really don't care if it's a small, a small modular reactor or a Gen 4 reactor, as long as they have the research floodgates open to keep the academic infrastructure going, that's fine. So I, I think it just helps us better understand exactly what our opposition is. I agree. Well, and I think I think further to what you're raising, Alfred. Um, you know, the 
the rationale that the Trump administration uh, is using uh, for this uh, this proposed nuclear and coal bailout um, is actually, you know, it's very concerning because not only are they talking about essentially declaring a state of national emergency and the preservation of, of nuclear power and, and coal as being a national security priority, um, but they're act, but they are but they are using the same concept that you talked about uh, that uh, that the preservation of the of the civilian nuclear power industry is important for the national defense uh, because it supports the nuclear weapons programs, and that's a, that's a very dangerous concept because you know one of the things that you know that has been sort of the bulwark or of you know of non nuclear weapons non proliferation policy in the world for the last you know several decades has been the idea that you know that that that, that you know that, that civilian nuclear power needs to be completely separate um, from you know from it needs to be held completely separate from nuclear weapons so that you know if you want to have nuclear power in the world unfortunately that's legal at this point but it has to be completely separated from nuclear weapons and there's a real danger that the US like many other reckless things that this administration is doing is going to break down that barrier um, and you know and, and then essentially you know allow every other country in the world to justify having nuclear power because it gives them nuclear weapons that's a, you know this is a really dangerous priority and in fact you know there was a there was a there was a report issued earlier this summer uh, by the by a panel of the National Academies of Sciences which is the nation's top scientific body Typically, they tend to be pro-nuclear, uh, but they issued a report about the you know, about this whole question of whether nuclear power you know is a climate solution. And what they concluded, even though they believed that the answer is that we need nuclear to solve the climate crisis, they concluded that nuclear wasn't nuclear power wasn't a good you know isn't going to be a viable option to reduce carbon emissions. And they talked about the various ways in which in which uh, which nuclear power could still get enough support to be a viable industry. And they talked about this issue of, you know, of people that are arguing that we need civilian nuclear power, um, you know, as a national defense priority to support the to support the nuclear weapons program. And this panel, even though they believe in nuclear power, said that this was a, that, that 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 would be a dangerous proposition to go down that road because of the of the can of worms that opens up in terms of nuclear weapons. So we're you know mm -hmm. we're we're, in an we're with an administration that's playing with matches on on nuclear weapons in the world. Yes, and I would argue that uh, that separation between nuclear power and nuclear weapons has always been a, a sham. Absolutely, absolutely. But you know, but uh, but as uh, as a norm that you know that that that, a, that enables us to at least prevent the spread of nuclear weapons, you know, it's I mean, there, there, there's something that's that's being broken here that's very dangerous. And you know, and I think from our perspective, of course, the only solution is to, is to phase out nuclear power and, and not have either technology. Enough fission already, right? <laughs> is it going on to our next caller? Uh, you should be unmuted. Um, hi, hello. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes, we can. Okay. Hi, I'm Paula Schrager, and I live in Massachusetts. I'm part of the Boston Downwinders Group, part of Massachusetts Peace Action. And um, I really appreciate the work you're doing, and um, this discussion has been great. Um, and I'm glad that you're focusing on um, Senate Bill 3422, because that recently came to my um, – I recently found out about it, and I was very upset. And I also heard about Senate Bill 97. Are you familiar with that? 
Yes, indeed, we're following that one as well. Yeah, so that's, I want to just want to make sure, because that, that apparently has already been passed, and there's nothing we can do about it. It says something about, I received an email that it, that it was basically, um, let's see, it was, um, they were creating a national reactor innovation center to combine national lab and Department of Energy expertise for the development of advanced nuclear re- reactor concepts. Um, now, is this something that won't have any clout unless it's funded? Is that one of those things you were talking about, or...? Absolutely. Yeah, this is this is one of those bills that you know that that you know that does you know some things that are very concerning, um, including a raft. And, and this one one of the things that's very concerning about this bill um, or this law now is that it, it's you know one of the main things that it does is sets up a whole bunch of ways for the for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which you know regulates the safety and the licensing of nuclear power plants and radioactive waste facilities. And the Department of Energy, which obviously has the has the responsibility for the nuclear weapons program and also you know energy research and development, uh, this bill basically sets up a whole bunch of ways for the DOE and the NRC to start collaborating mm-hmm. around energy R and D and nuclear you know nuclear reactor designs and those sort of things, and you know this is sort of undoing um, the history of you know of, of the Department of Energy and the NRC. You know, back when 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 the Atomic Energy Act, uh, which makes all of nuclear power possible, was passed back in the 50s, it created an agency called the Atomic Energy Commission that had the job of both promoting nuclear power and regulating and licensing nuclear power plants. And that was a conflict of interest that led to undermining safety standards. And so, so Congress actually passed the Energy Reorganization Act in the 1970s to break up that agency and give and, and make the NRC an independent safety regulator, totally separate from the DOE, whose job is to is to promote atomic technology. And this and this legislation is starting to starting to you know basically break down the walls between those agencies in a very in a very significant way. It's a really bad idea. But is there anything you can do about that, or is it just a done deal? Well, the law is the law now, but uh, but I think that you know the the, the various initiatives that are in this bill. Um, are things that, you know, that, that we should challenge in appropriations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And what, one other quick question. We have a new representative, um, Ayanna Presley, in my district. And when should I meet? I mean, should I meet with her now or wait until January once she's when, – when, when you say early, what do you mean? Yeah, as, as, as soon as you can. As soon uh-huh. as you can. Um, I mean, obviously, the, you, know, the, the new, you, know, you know, the new representatives especially are in a pretty chaotic time. They've got to start – you know, like they've got to get oriented to Congress, and they've got to hire staff, and they've got to find an office, and those sort of things. Um, but but you know, but as soon as you can get their attention and, and you know and schedule time to talk to them, um, mm. it's a good idea to do it. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for everything. Thanks a lot. Okay. Um, turning to the next caller. Um, should be unmuted. Oh, hi, it's Jan Bodart. Can you hear okay. me? Yes, we can hear you. Uh, well, all I was, uh, uh, I got one up by somebody who mentioned the fact that um, uh, it, it's always been true that uh, nuclear reactors have um, uh, been for weapons production. And in fact, the very first consent-based siting meeting that Moniz, or that the DOE had in Chicago Oh, about two and a half years ago, there was a video of Moniz 
saying that very thing, that we have to keep our nuclear, we have to take care of our nuclear waste, because if we don't, we're going to lose our nuclear power plants, and that will affect our uh, national security of, uh, in, the re- in the regard of nuclear weapons. And I'm going to go off. Uh, that was all I had to say, and somebody else already said it. So, bye. Bye. Okay, thanks, Dan. Um, so, uh, if anyone else would like to ask a question or make a comment, um, just press star six and you can get in the queue, but um, that's the last person we have in the queue at the moment. Um, uh, Mary and Dee, do you, do, you do you have any closing thoughts or comments? I do. Um, <clears throat> I never understood the words opportunity cost. It was a slogan to me. I didn't know, you know, I didn't have good economic background to to put together that it it's something that you could have done but since you didn't do it you lost that opportunity and that's a cost and I just think that we need to get national level coverage to continue on what's happened here in the southeast with billions of dollars going into well out of the pockets of electricity customers for nothing Absolutely nothing, no benefit, no services, nothing. I mean, I tell people in South Carolina that they have a benefit that the new radioactivity isn't happening, the new radioactive waste isn't happening because the reactors that they spent $9 billion of people's money for reactors that are never going to operate, we hope, we hope there's still no bailout there, but, but an enormous, what could you do with $9 billion towards real climate solutions? And in this case, it's just down the toilet of these corporations, digging up a lot of land and pouring a lot of concrete for something that's going to do nothing for nobody. So I think we'd have to keep skewering the nuclear industry as being the biggest opportunity cost ever. So we have a couple more questions that have come up. Um, <laughs> so I'm muting the next one now from a 914 area code. Hello? Hello. Sorry, I had myself on mute, double mute. Uh, type of thing my husband would love me to on. Anyway, uh, it's Michelle Lee. Uh, thanks so much for, for all the work you're doing. Um, I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the uh, coordination you're doing with WISE and on an international level and just sort of spotlight that for folks. And I'll get off. Sure, and by, by WISE you mean the World Information Service on Energy. Right. Um, yeah, so why is it And we a, should thank a, Michelle Lee for being um, a long-standing board member of Nuclear Information and Resource Service. Yeah. Um, so uh, so WISE is a, you know, is, is our international, well, we're, we're affiliated with, with WISE for going on 20 years now. And uh, WISE is based in the Netherlands, but, they, but they've, you know, um, got an international presence and sort of serve as kind of the equivalent to NEARS for the international anti-nuclear movement. And so, you know, you know we work with WISE in a variety of ways, including producing the, uh, the, the nuclear monitor, which Denise mentioned earlier in the call. Um, but we also help coordinate uh, the Don't Nuke the Climate Coalition, uh, which is a global coalition, uh, you know, organized by, I think, seven different organizations, including WISE and NEARS, 
um, to, uh, to push back against nuclear power being promoted um, internationally as a climate solution, uh, you know, within the context of, um, of the, uh, the Global Climate Treaty uh, Conference um, that's, that's going to be meeting actually again in Poland next month. Um, so we've been working with, with WISE and, and other organizations for, uh, for over a decade now uh, to keep nuclear out of the climate treaty. And so far, we've been successful. Um, and, you know, we're going to be going right back to Poland again uh, next month uh, when the Trump administration just announced uh, uh, yesterday that they're going to be doing another big push for, for a dirty energy approach to climate, including, uh, including fossil fuels and nuclear. And yeah, Mary, I, I do you guys want to share anything about, about the work with WISE? I'm sorry? Just wanted to give you guys a chance to weigh in on that. <clears throat> Diane, you might have more to say about it. Oh, well, um, over the decades, we've worked with WISE on um, you know, preventing new nuclear power in other countries, on watchdogging it, on... Um, tracking some of the efforts at deregulation. Uh, so it's, uh, as Tim said, uh, keeping it out of the climate treaty has been the latest big push. Yeah, we should say actually that, that this year is also WISE's 40th anniversary. So um, it's really been twins in the anti-nuclear movement. Um, so moving on to the, uh, to the last question. Uh, this is Peter Wolf, and uh, I was at the industry conference, and Mary was there as well. Um, but the, the thing that, that struck me that I think needs to be a part of this perspective is that what you have today are nuclear power plants that can list, uh, the companies can list their power plants as assets, revenue-producing assets. And the minute that they're closed down, they become liabilities. So. The conference was really looking at ways that they could make money on the decommissioning and that they could make money also on the storage. And of course, they're also going to try to do the transportation and that they're going to try to get these uh, CIS facilities in West Texas and, and uh, Eastern New Mexico. And I think that if we're going to be vigilant, uh, they did not seem to be bothered at all by the um, a seeming restriction that you couldn't start a CIS without a um, nuclear waste repository. Uh, they seem to be pretty confident that they could get around that somehow. And I think that if we're going to be vigilant and looking at what's going on in Washington during the lame duck session and what comes up, it should be in, in those areas because that seems to be where they're, where they're putting their efforts. And I would welcome Mary to comment on this as well. Yeah, um, this is again referencing the um, decommissioning and high-level, well, what they call it is used fuel. And I think that's very telling in this picture because um, some of the corporations involved have had big backgrounds in reprocessing, in separating plutonium from radioactive waste. This includes Arriva from France and SNC-Lavalin from Canada. So they don't call it waste. They call it used fuel. And I think one of the most interesting things I heard in the course of the two days this meeting was going on was a sort of quiet 
mumbled conversation on the second morning about the fact that they were going to talk at the Department of Justice about not just getting cost recovery for storage containers and pads at reactor sites because the 1998 waste deadline was not met. They were now going to try and get funding for actual shipment of the waste to their own new proposed facilities that are in licensing at the NRC, one belonging to an Ariva affiliate and the other belonging to an SNC-Lavalin affiliate, Um, Ariva being in the Texas WCS group and Lavalin being in the Holtec New Mexico group. Now, how realistic this is, I have absolutely no idea. I think there's a whole bevy of legal issues surrounding this, including whether there would be liability coverage for such um, a situation. I think there's going to be lots of opportunities, but I do think it points to the fact that Congress is not the only place that everyone needs to be, you know, watching and watchdogging. So um, I, I found it very, very useful to go spend two days with these guys who I've been around for close to 30 years, a lot of the same faces. And the last thing I'll say about it is they don't have young people in their rooms either. So if we can manage to pull that off, we'll be way ahead of the nuclear waste committed profiteers. And this is Diane. I'd like to also mention that there is uh, – It started small, and it's getting much, much bigger, opposition locally and statewide, and now along transport routes to the two proposed centralized storage sites at Holtec in New Mexico and Waste Control Specialist Arriva Arano now in uh, Texas, and that... uh, the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission licensing process is underway and there are numerous, uh, six, maybe ten separate interveners in each of those processes. Um, There's also legal challenges, not only from uh, individuals and uh, public interest groups and local communities, but local industries, uh, pecan and dairy farmers are opposing it. Uh, the oil industry is uh, challenging the threat to their industry by the nuclear waste coming into both New Mexico and Texas. So it's becoming uh, very controversial on the, uh, in the licensing process and in the, the PR uh, world in both of those states. And uh, so that's, that's fighting on the... Um, waste coming into centralized interim storage proposed facilities, but then also on the the decommissioning front, um, the whole new restructuring of the way that the uh, companies are going to uh, get their money for managing nuclear waste and decommissioning reactors and I would say rating the the funds that have been collected. Um, We also have an increased push to make it cheaper to decommission, and one of the ways is to uh, declare half of the waste, very low-level waste, and release it into the marketplace and into consumer goods and recycling. So we've got to watch it on all ends. And as I mentioned earlier, and Mary's mentioned, we have won these battles before. We have won them over and over again. And it's 
ever so important that we take them on in 2019 and we win again. And I appreciate so much all of the effort of uh, people around the country, around the world working on this and uh, implore folks to send a donation to Nuclear Information Resource Service. 40 bucks in honor of our 40 years would be just great. And thanks for listening tonight. Thank you. Uh, so we're a little bit over time. Do we have uh, any more questions, Tim? Uh, no, that's it. All right then. Well, uh, this is the conclusion of our telebriefing. I want to thank everybody for being on this call and for all your questions. Um, and have a wonderful, wonderful night. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.